Welcome to Heard at Heritage. Heard at Heritage features cutting-edge analysis and thought from leading experts in and across the conservative movement, as well as premier events and programming from the Heritage Foundation here in the heart of Washington, D.C., brought straight to you. Thank you, everyone. My name is Joe Griffith. I'm a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Today's briefing is what you need to know about the Hamas attacks in Israel. We are very pleased to have both Michael Duran and Elliot Cohenim join us. Michael Duran is a senior fellow at the Hudson Institute, where he's a specialist in Middle East security issues. And in the George W. Bush administration, he was senior director in the National Security Council. We also have Elliot Cohenim joining us today. She's former deputy envoy to monitor anti-Semitism at the United States State Department. And she's now a visiting fellow at the Independent Women's Forum. You know, over the past few weeks, the radical Islamist organization Hamas has fired more than 4,000 rockets at Israeli communities. In just the first 10 days of May, it's terrorized millions of Israeli citizens, both Jewish, Muslim, and Christian alike. Sadly, as Israel has sought to defend her citizens from this onslaught, progressive groups and politicians have displayed an explicable hostility towards our ally with many baseless accusations and twisted reporting. Because of this, we've invited both of these experts to give their perspective on the situation. So I'm gonna pose a question to both of you, if uh, you can lead Michael Duran and then followed by Ellie. Co um, by Ellie. Um, and after four years of relative peace and after multiple historic peace deals between Israel and several of our Arab neighbors, what was the pretext for these rocket launches? And what is the actual reason? Now, take it away, Mike. Uh Thanks. Uh, thanks for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I think that um, the the pretext for the the, the rocket launches was the the uh, dispute over the uh, the dispute over the housing in Sheikh Jarrah, and also the claim that Israel was trying to uh, take control of the um, uh, Islamic holy places and on on the Temple Mount. Um, but I, I think the way to understand this is the sort of two levels, two key levels. One is the the competition between um, Hamas and Fatah for uh, the dominant position within Palestinian politics. Um, Hamas saw an opportunity after um, uh, after Mahmoud Abbas canceled the elections for the Palestinian Authority to present itself as the leading element in the Palestinian in Palestinian politics and to and to present itself as the defender of um, Jerusalem. But there's another level here um, that hasn't got as much attention as I think it deserves, uh, and that's that uh, this is really an assault by Iran on Israel and on the American security system. Uh, in, in general, Hamas's and Palestinian Islamic Jihad's military capabilities come from Iran. Um, uh, Iran uh, shares with Hamas a desire to um, elevate the Palestinian issue in uh, international politics to, um, uh, to a position of primacy, but also uh, to elevate Hamas within the Palestinian Authority to the, within Palestinian politics to the dominant uh, position because Hamas is is uh, is Iran's ally, um, and I I think that's for Americans. I think that's the level that we should be most focused on is the effort of of Iran um, to make this play in um, in the Palestinian arena. 
Jill, uh, I first of all, thanks for having me on, and my thanks to Heritage Foundation, which uh, I have so much admiration and respect for everything that happens there. Um, I agree with Michael completely, and I actually just argued in The Hill on this very subject that um, the timing of Hamas's rocket attacks on Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, there's no accidents, there's no coincidences here. And what I mean by that is if you look what's happening on the international stage, the United States, the Biden administration, administration is engaging the Iranian regime right now in Vienna, you know, negotiating re-entry into the JCPOA. And in my mind, I think there's a direct line connection between the United States kind of almost desperately trying to get the Iranians to re-enter the 2015 Iran nuclear deal. And then Hamas, which is Iran's proxy, waging this war against Israel. Because frankly, I think that Hamas and the Iranian regime are emboldened right now, knowing that the United States very very, very much wants to re-enter the deal. And so in some ways they've received this green light to do whatever they wish. And the reason why I don't think the timing is a coincidence is because if you look back at the Trump administration, we did not see this level of escalation and violence for four years. Even when the United States moved our embassy to Jerusalem, we didn't see this kind of escalation and attacks. In fact, Jerusalem hasn't been attacked by Hamas rockets since 2014. So there, there is in my mind no doubt that there is a direct link between our foreign policy right now and engaging in Iran and, uh, and Hamas attacking the Israelis. Um, you know, uh, uh, many in the media have been focused on the number of casualties throughout uh, this rocket attack. And of course, there's been more casualties in Gaza than there have been in Israel. Could you go into some detail about in what ways Hamas is responsible for that loss of life and how focusing only on those numbers can actually give a very contorted picture of what actually is occurring right now between Gaza and Israel. Well, the, the Israelis have been saying over and again that Hamas has been committing double war crimes. And what they mean by that is that Hamas is um, waging attacks from civilian areas, hoping indeed for civilian casualties on the Palestinian side. So that's one uh, you know, war crime right there. And then they're attacking Israeli civilians. So that's your second war crime. Now, this um, use of human shields is something that the Palestinians have been doing going back to Yasser Arafat, who is the leader of the PLO. This is a longtime Palestinian tactic. And the reason they do it is because they know they win the PR war. They specifically are trying for high Palestinian casualty numbers so that Israel is censured in the international media and in international bodies like the UN so that Israel will automatically lose the PR war. And for, for Hamas, which is a foreign terrorist organization, they don't care about human lives. They have no value for human life. So they're perfectly happy to take the Palestinian deaths in order to win the PR war against Israel. I think uh, it's um, important to remember that uh, you know, a democratic army puts uh, its puts the military between uh, its public and its enemy, and a terrorist army puts its public between itself and its and its enemy, and and that is basically the that is basically basically the modus operandi of of Hamas. Um, it uh, repeatedly, or it, it as a matter of course 
puts its forces next to civilian population, knowing full well that the that the Israelis will um, will be restrained because of that, restrained significantly because of that, um, will avoid actually um, uh, any kind of ground incursion into Gaza uh, because of that, and also knowing full well that any civilian uh, deaths that result from that are going to be treated by a very very significant part. Of the international press corps as um, um, as an Israeli attack on on civilians, um, it's been actually kind of shocking this time around. We know that that's the way Hezbollah works. That's the way all of Iran's proxies work. But it's been shocking to see the level of um, acceptance of that narrative by the by the international press corps, including key elements of America's press corps. Joel, I, I want to just stay on this topic a little bit longer, which is that um, what I've been really horrified to see on social media is people kind of almost putting out this notion that because there isn't an equal number of Israeli deaths, um, somehow this justifies Hamas's behavior. And, uh, and then there's also this criticism you know, kind of relating back to the Iron Dome system. Well, look, the Iron Dome is a defensive system that that literally defends Israeli cities and and citizens from uh, from rocket attacks. So, if Iron Dome didn't work, you would certainly see more Israeli deaths. And there are people in in you know again in the media and in, and social media who somehow are um, trying to make this um, argument that the Israelis are doing something wrong here or that we should not be, the United States should not be supporting or refunding Iron Dome systems because somehow the Jews have less dead people at the end of, uh, of a conflict like we just witnessed. And it's such a morally vacuous uh, argument. It's just kind of beyond me how anyone would make this case, but we're seeing it sadly a lot in the mainstream media. Yeah, to, to that point, I had seen, I was watching MSNBC the other day and I saw Chris Hayes talking about the, the Iron Dome and, you know, and how it protects lives in Israel. And he asked, well, why can't we provide a similar safety system to Gaza? Um, what, what would uh, your rebuttal and explanation be to the question that he posed on, on MSNBC on his show? Um, Mike, if you don't mind, I'll, I'll take this one first, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to your thoughts. Look, you know, the reality is that Hamas and, and the Palestinian leadership, they're not interested in protecting their civilians. We just covered that. But, you know, the proof is in the pudding, and that's in the millions upon millions of dollars that they take to spend on this underground tunnel system, terror tunnel system that they've built. And, uh, and look, that's millions of dollars that they could be spending on infrastructure, on health and human services, and certainly on, on defensive military needs if that's what their priority was. But it's not their priority. Hamas, again, is a foreign terrorist organization, according to the U.S. State Department. They, they have been very clear what they're trying to achieve. The Hamas Charter says it in black and white. They want to destroy the state, the Jewish state of Israel, and that's their only goal. So certainly, uh, if they were interested, I'm sure they could acquire defensive systems. It's just not their interest. It's also, uh, you know, important to point out that uh, a lot of the press corps in in pushing the the Hamas preferred narrative that Israel is making war on Palestinian civilians, that um, you know, it seems to be assumed that there is some kind of diplomatic approach to Hamas that will that will that will actually change the Hamas's position 
Um, in fact, there are a lot of experts in, in Washington, Middle East experts, who are suggesting that Hamas has actually accepted the two-state solution. Um, and it's just a matter of more uh, flexibility on the part of Israel um, would bring about a, a, a different result with Hamas. I think that that's also just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. If you just listen to what the Hamas leaders are saying, if you listen to what they're educating their children to believe, um, it, it's just not um, uh, it's just not a tenable position or, or an accurate position. Um, but that leaves us, I mean, in, in in this terrible position, which there there are um, hundreds of thousands of uh, of Palestinian civilians who are uh, who are put at risk by Hamas's actions, and there is no simple solution to it. Um, and, and I think people don't kind of psychologically, they don't want to just admit that and then work within that framework. So they try to come up with ways that we can re we can change our approach and somehow uh, somehow um, get a different result. Yeah, um, you know, it, it, we've talked a bit about um, Iran and how they funded Hamas in the past. Uh, if sanctions were to be lifted, if we were to re-enter the, the peace deal, what exactly could we anticipate uh, in terms of uh, future Hamas activity? I, I would argue that um, the Iranian regime has a track record. Uh, so this is not a whole lot of guesswork. You know, We know that when they have access to funds, they fund their proxies. So it's Hamas and Islamic Jihad in Gaza, it's Hezbollah in Lebanon, it's the Houthis in Yemen, it's Kateb Hezbollah in Iraq. You know, all the regional instability in the Middle East, unfortunately, all roads lead back to Tehran. So I don't think there's any kind of stretch of imagination to understand that should the United States lift sanctions, um, a lot of that money is going to wind up in the coffers of terrorists all across the Middle East, North Africa. I also want to throw out that Iran also has a presence right at our doorstep in Latin America. And that's something that should really be worrying uh, U.S. Uh, government, senior leadership officials. We should really be thinking very hard about the Iranian presence right at our doorstep. Yeah, but in the in the past few weeks since um, the Hamas, the most recent Hamas war against Israel has begun, we have seen uh, really a surge in anti-Semitic activities, um, particularly here in the United States. Uh, think of the situations that we've seen across New York City, but also LA with synagogues. Uh, can you talk about how that um, is related to some of the mainstreaming of anti-Semitism that we see with some political leaders here in the United States? Joel, you know, this has been um, something that I've been concerned about and tracking for a long time. And, and I think in your question, you're referring to members of Congress um, who I would argue are, are of a bit of a leftist fringe, Rashida Tlaib, Ilhan Omar, AOC, uh, Ayanna Presley, and all of these people over the course of this 11-day conflict uh, between Hamas and Israel have tweeted just the most outrageous anti-Semitic statements. They've called Israel an apartheid state, whether, you know, despite the fact that there's no documentation of that, that Israeli Arabs have every um, legal protection under the law and, and freedoms as every other Israeli does. Um, they've also, Ilhan Omar uh, tweeted that um, Israel's self-defensive measures in, Haza, in, in, um, in Israel, sorry, against Hamas are, are an act of terrorism, quote unquote. Um, so this kind of language is, is incitement 
and we can't be surprised when then after after the most powerful people in the United States Congress are making these statements that people um, in the U.S. waving Palestinian flags start to show up in Jewish neighborhoods and start to violently assault Jews. You know, they these members of Congress really need to understand that they are in a position of power. Their words mean a lot. And, um, you know, some of the members of the squad have issued uh, statements condemning anti-Semitism. But I would tell you, frankly, that it's too little too late. The, uh, the approach of the Biden administration to Iran um, I want to be careful with my words here because it's a it's a um, a delicate sort of nuanced thing to say, um, but it's creating a framework um, in which it is a lot in in which um, Iranian propaganda and um, and anti-Semitic attacks on Israel um, are more likely to thrive. I'm I'm trying to the 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 reason I'm struggling to find the words here is I don't want to say. That it is the that, that it is the intention of the Biden administration to do this, um, or that um, or that they're secretly working with people to make this to make this happen. Um, it's just a result of a confluence of the direction of American policy and the intentions of the Iranians and the, um, and, and those elements who support the Iranian position um, and the Hamas position, either out of sympathy for Hamas or uh, misguided sympathy for others. Or, or actually working directly with the Iranians. Now, what, what, what do I mean by that? The Biden administration believes it, it, it wants the Palestinian question to be prominent, more prominent um, in, uh, on the international agenda um, than it does, for example, the Abraham Accords. Because the Abraham Accords were, uh, were um, at base, they were an effort to bring Israel and Saudi Arabia together um, the, the all of the parties to the Abraham Accords, the United Arab Emirates, the Bahrainis, the Sudanese, uh, and the Moroccans are very close to Saudi Arabia. So behind this, in power political terms, was a Saudi move toward Israel. Um, as a part of, in addition to making peace, there's an effort there to contain Iran. Um, the Iranians want to bust that up. Uh, because they uh, uh, because it it it, uh, it it works very much against them, but the Biden administration also went, is against the the Abraham Accords. It's against the Abraham Accords because uh, because all of the uh, because the Democratic Party has been preaching um, dogmatically for years that that there can be no advances in in the region if if the Palestinian Israeli dimension isn't handled first, um, and secondly because the the Biden approach with the JCPOA is not just a new approach uh, or, or a, um, a return to the Obama approach of the on the nuclear question. It's also an effort to engage Iran diplomatically across the region, a misguided uh, um, effort in, in, in my view. The Iranians and Hamas were looking at this, as Ellie said earlier, um, in effect, they see an opportunity there to exploit this this new flexibility in the American position in order to push these issues forward. And if I could go on just a little longer, there's one other dimension to this, and that's the domestic American agenda or the domestic American position. The reason, one of the reasons why the Biden administration wants to return to the Obama uh, position with regard to the JCPOA, as well as the diplomatic engagement of the Iranians in the region is that it plays very well 
to the progressive base of the of the uh, of the Democratic Party. The progressive base regards uh, Benjamin Netanyahu in Israel and Mohammed bin Sol uh, Salman in Saudi Arabia as uh, as uh, um, uh, warmongers, and it regards the the supporters of uh, Israel in uh, domestic American politics. That's security-minded Republicans, Zionists, and uh, evangelical Christians, for example, as um, uh, uh, as uh, also, uh, uh, if not warmongers, parties who, have, who support a foreign policy that is going to lead to conflict. So it creates this, I, I think it's a mythology, a cosmology even, of the party of war, which is all the elements that progressives normally don't like, uh, and the party, uh, Iran then becomes not the peace party, but the object of diplomacy. So if you are against diplomacy with Iran, if you're against diplomacy with Hamas, because you think it's futile and will weaken the American position in the region, well, then you are a warmonger. That's, a, that's not an intelligent foreign policy, but it, but it, but it plays very well domestically with the, um, with the progressive base. Michael, I agree with you completely, and also I think we saw we saw that originate in the Obama administration. That was when um, there was this kind of like talking points that we heard everywhere, which was either make this deal with Iran or we're going to have a war. Um, and I don't think anything in in the facts of the case have proven that argument out, but we're hearing it over and over again. I also just want to add on to your um, to your statement about Iran and anti-Semitism. Um, Fox News also broke a story about um, the social media warfare that Iran has been doing, where um, intelligence sources believe that it, it's very likely that Iranian forces have been trending um, this, you know, hashtag Hitler was right, and uh, and other, you know, very nefarious anti-Semitic. Um, material out on social media. They also uh, believe that the um, COVID-48 uh, hashtag an entire campaign originated from Iran where, and we've seen the Iranian, you know, official state media and uh, official accounts, you know, certainly put out this COVID-48, which um, basically they're comparing the coronavirus with 1948, the year of Israel's founding. And, uh, and so you can understand if, if coronavirus is a virus and we need to eliminate it, then 1948 Israel is, is being compared to a virus which also needs to be eliminated. So, you know, for this reason, our State Department under the Trump administration actually did designate uh, Iran as the number one state sponsor of, of anti-Semitism in the world. Um, and so you can see Iran also working in the cyber space as well to spread this hatred of Jews in Israel. Yeah, thank, thank you both for that. Um, we don't have time for many questions, but there, there were a few that uh, I wanted to get to that I thought were, um, were, were quite interesting. Number one is, uh, what indication uh, do we have um, that Israel um, was able to substantially degrade the capabilities of Hamas um, throughout their retaliation? I think there's no doubt that they uh, um, that they degraded their capabilities um, to a uh, to a very very significant extent. Uh, the what we're hearing uh, from the briefings coming out of uh, Jerusalem 
uh, and I, I don't see any reason to, to disagree with them, is that the what they're calling Hamas's metro, that is this uh, this very extensive underground tunnel network. Uh, we're talking about hundreds of kilometers, literally hundreds of kilometers of tunnel networks, um, uh, has been largely destroyed. Um, the uh, ability of Hamas to make the, the 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 difference between the 2014 conflict and this one is that Hamas has is no longer simply smuggling in um, rockets and missiles from Iran. They're actually constructing them um, in um, uh, in Gaza, and they're um, they're uh, their machinery for constructing those has been largely uh, largely destroyed. The the what they what the Israelis did not succeed in doing, I think, is taking out the entire arsenal. They they for whatever reason, either because they their intelligence wasn't good enough to locate all of the stockpiles of rockets and missiles, or because they calculated that destroying them would kill too many civilians, um, they didn't succeed in doing that. So there still is a stockpile of rockets and um, uh, and missiles there. Although we're also seeing some of the launches of the, you know, Hamas is actually, uh, some of the civilians killed by Hamas were killed by um, uh, uh, um, rockets and missiles that were too old and had degraded. And so they misfired and then they landed inside um, uh, inside Gaza, that's a sign that some of the stockpiles are already, if they're they're not uh, they're not totally obsolete, they are part they are um, partially uh, obsolete. Um, so from a kind of pure military point of view, I think it was a it was a great success it, um, as far as stripping Hamas of capabilities for the moment. The problem that the Israelis have, and I think that we Americans should think long and hard about. Is that that um, that doesn't mean that the capabilities are not going to grow back and grow back better than they were before? I mean, the the example here um, uh, is Hezbollah in the 2006 conflict, uh, uh, the Second Lebanon War. Israel made a lot of mistakes militarily in in 2006, but over time it became clear that Hezbollah was significantly damaged and deterred. I mean, uh, Hassan Nasrallah himself came out and said that if you'd have known what was gonna happen, how the Israelis were gonna respond after they tried to kidnap the the um, Israeli soldiers which sparked the war. Um, if you'd have known that, he wouldn't have gone, he, he wouldn't have gotten into that, uh, into that conflict. So you can say from an Israeli point of view, you can look at that picture and you can say, ah, well, success, we degraded their capabilities and we deterred them, but, uh, but Hezbollah has, with the help of the Iranians, has grown back. It now has 150 rockets and missiles. Some of them are now precision-guided weaponry. It's being um, uh, with heavier payloads than uh, than before. And I, I think it's true to say that Israel is significantly deterred from conflict with Hezbollah because of all of that capability. Um, uh, so the same thing you can, the same kind of dynamic you can see in in Gaza, where uh, uh, where. Israel was successfully successful militarily in 2014 in the same way that it was now, uh, but but Hamas grew back in seven years with with a, with a more lethal capability than it had before. So this is the dilemma. Uh, uh, Hamas can look at this conflict and actually say that they that they are claiming victory. Um, um, uh, of course, uh, this is you know this is what they would say no matter what. But I think when you look at it from their point of view, they scored some very significant successes. They have greater um, support in the international media than ever before. They were able to spark their 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 violence was able to spark 
uh, intercommunal violence in cities in, in Israel. Um, they probably are overshadowing the Palestinian Authority over or the Fatah. Uh, more than they uh, they were before, and they have put the Palestinian agenda, the Palestinian question, on the um, on the international agenda um, in a way that it uh, that it that it wasn't before. So it's it, the 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 narrow military definition of success um, is is serious and 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 can't be denied. Uh, but there are other factors that uh, uh, should make us look at this and see that it's not a decisive victory in any way. Joel, I would also add to that, um, you know, what happens next? So whatever the Israelis were able to achieve, the United States just announced that we're be, you know, we're donating millions of dollars to UNRWA, million, millions of dollars to Gaza. It's under the premise of reconstruction, but um, we know that Hamas is not, you know, a legitimate government, and monies that come into the area are funneled towards terrorism. We also just spoke about the United States lifting sanctions on Iran, which is the patron state of Hamas. So I think also you've got this issue with, again, as much as the Israelis were able to uh, destroy a Hamas's capacity, how long until they're back where they started and if not further advance, as Michael said? Well, um, I, in closing, I have just one final question, and I think it's on a lot of folks' minds. Uh, you know, we can recognize Israel's right to exist and the necessity to act in self-defense, but why, do, why does this matter to uh, the United States? Why should we be concerned as Americans about what is going on between Hamas and Israel and be concerned with Iran funding future Hamas activity? There's so many reasons. Um, I'll, I'll start with this. You know, first of all, the notion that the United States can just pull out of the Middle East and and this vacuum that will create, uh, you know, nothing bad will happen and will never get pulled in again. Um, I know that that's where the American public wishes to be heading. But the reality is if we empower the Iranian regime, which is again, the number one state sponsor of terrorism in the world, if we empower that regime, well, we can expect that they're going to continue uh, just as they have in the past. So they're gonna continue uh, sponsoring this terrorist activity and malign activity all around the Middle East, North Africa region, and even at our doorstep in Latin America. So, um, so you know, for starters, it's, it's not smart US foreign policy because we are gonna get dragged right into the Middle East as soon as we empower the Iranian regime. In terms of Israel, you know, Israel is a small country um, surrounded by vastly larger uh, countries but Israel is a democracy. It's the country that reflects US values more than any other in that region. And uh, remember, the United States was built on Judeo-Christian values and Israel is, is really the shining beacon of that in the Middle East. They're also a model state because despite all the lies and accusations that are thrown against them, the Israelis actually have managed to create a society where Jew, Christian, Muslim, and other all live side by side. And whenever people go visit Israel, they kind of, when they see that for themselves, it's a powerful experience. So in terms of creating a society in the Middle East, that's actually very diverse and, uh, and you know, has a lot of coexistence uh, on a daily basis. Israel is really a flourishing democracy. 
And finally, look, you know, the Israelis, as small as they are, they do have um, an incredible military and intelligence ability. And the United States, frankly, relies on the Israelis. They are a very important ally for us in the Middle East, if not the most important ally that we have. And so for those reasons, it's clearly in U.S. interest to make sure that we keep the U.S.-Israel relationship strong, that we make sure that little Israel in this region surrounded by many enemies and many failed terror states around it, that Israel has the support it needs to continue being the flourishing democracy that it is. Uh, well I couldn't said. agree. Thanks. Oh, sorry, are we done? Oh, no, it's, uh, you're, you're on mic. Uh, uh, I, I couldn't agree more with uh, everything that Ellie said. Um, I, I, I'd just like to add a couple of, uh, um, uh, a couple of layers onto that picture that she, uh, that she drew. Uh, there, there is a kind of concept out there on the right and on the left in, in America that we don't need the Middle East anymore. Uh, and uh, I, I, I think uh, we don't have time to go into, into great detail uh, about uh, why, why that view is wrong, but I, I, think it's, I think it's misguided. I think the power that dominates the Middle East uh, is going to dominate global energy um, uh, for the foreseeable future, um, and they are going to therefore uh, have enormous influence over all of those countries that are dependent on uh, oil and gas that either comes from the Middle East or goes through it. That includes China, all of China's adversaries, and that includes Europe. So the power that dominates the Middle East is going to dominate uh, or is going to have a, a position of great influence over all of Eurasia. Um, and from the American point of view, you should be, we should be looking at China in that regard. And China is allying with Iran uh, in order to, it's using it as a stalking horse, um, in, in order to undermine the American security system. And if the United States pulls back and, uh, and, and says, we're, we're just going to leave, then China is going to move in. If the United States does what it's doing with the Biden administration, that's reaching out to Iran and assuming, as uh, as the Secretary of State recently said, that China and the United States have overlapping interests in Iran. Then what we do is we allow the Iran we build a rod for our own back, and we allow the the Chinese and the Iranians to work together to undermine the American system. We actually take part of American power and lend it to the Iranians to undermine our uh, to undermine our our system. The people who are arguing that seem to believe, and they, as Rob Malley argued in a, a Foreign Affairs article, Rob Malley, the Iran envoy for the Biden administration, that our allies, that Saudi Arabia and Israel, are drawing us into needless conflict with Iran. I think this is exactly the wrong way to see it. It's clear there's a line of continuity running from, um, uh, running from Barack Obama to Donald Trump to Joe Biden, which says we want to have less American direct military commitment on the ground in the Middle East. I, I completely understand that. The Biden administration following the Obama administration is saying, well, the way to achieve that, the way to pull America back but stabilize the region is to appease Iran and to make concessions to it on the nuclear file, but also regionally, and then we can, we can reach a stable balance. So in, in other words, they're saying, we're gonna move America away from Israel and, 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 and Saudi Arabia, and, um, and it will be kind of in between holding the balance between the two. Like I say, I think that leads to disaster for the, for the United States. The only way to achieve what we want, which is to remain very influential but not have large numbers of American troops on the ground, is to work through allies and to strengthen allies. And in that case, 
um, uh, Israel is clearly um, uh, in a position to help us more than any other country. Just think of what the Israelis have been able to do in Iran under uh, Donald Trump, um, uh, killing Fakhrizadeh, the head of the Iranian nuclear pro program, going into Natanz, the enrichment facility, on more than one occasion, and uh, and carrying out very significant um, acts of sabotage there. The Israelis have the uh, have a um, uh, an ability to reach into Iran uh, in ways that no other country does. That's and Israel is only a country of, of, of nine million people. Um, it really is the best ally that we have when it comes to constraining Iran. Well, I want to. Sorry, if I could just say. It's the, it's, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's the best ally we have, but it can't do the job on its own. It's too small. Well, I want to thank both of you for providing a clarity. I know in a very short amount of time, clarity on this and such a wonderful overview. Um, we uh, have a handout attached that uh, gives you more information and background information if you want to read more from our experts that we had on here today. Thanks for your time. Thanks to both of you. And thanks for everybody who joined us today.